Brilliant. Well, thank you to Andy and Simon for indulging me and letting me come to a Baptist conference to speak about medieval Catholics. I hope that by the end you might have an inkling of why I'm so interested in these amazing women that uh, throughout my time training for ministry at Regent's Park College I've become slightly obsessed with and I'm now doing a master's looking into their lives. So my title today is how did Marjorie Kemp understand her role in relation to wider medieval discourse on the ordination of women, or why Baptists should care about medieval studies even though we weren't around them? So with the Gregorian reforms in the 11th century came the beginnings of a seismic shift in prevailing understandings of ordination in the medieval church. Over the coming centuries before the Reformation, the distinction between clergy and laity was sharpened, and the role of the priest became really the pinnacle of religious life. Ordination, which had often been understood in the early church and in the early medieval period as function, functionalistic, as dedication to a particular role, it came to be construed in more ontological terms, with male celibacy forming a significant part of that ontology. The religious vocations of women were increasingly marginalised and women were excluded from ordained roles. Given the exclusion of women from ordained roles, which seems to concur with a turn from functional to sacramental understandings of ordination, it is perhaps surprising that Marjorie Kemp seems to have understood her role in ontological terms. She believed herself to be ordained to be a mirror, to reflect the divine and represent the church and she believed herself to have received authority from Christ to speak in his name. In addition, Marjorie's self-depiction as daughter, wife and mother of God, married to God the Father and bearing Christ, is notable as priests often used mothering imagery to describe their role. So in this paper, I shall examine Marjorie's understanding of her role in the context of changing medieval understandings of ordination, I will focus on the sources of her her authority, the imagery she draws upon to describe her role, and the aspects that um, come with her uh, treatment and reception by clerics. So women's roles had been a lot more prevalent in the early medieval church. Marjorie was around in the late 14th, early 15th century, but earlier than that, England saw mitred abbesses in the 7th and 8th century, who were often leaders over double monasteries, communities of men and women, and even popes until the 12th century referred to the commissioning of deaconesses, abbesses and nuns as ordination. Now I could spend this whole paper defining ordination, um, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to say briefly that before the 12th century, ordination was broadly functional, the setting aside of uh, people for a, to a particular order, which included priests and deacons, but also nuns, monks, exorcists, and a load of other minor orders as well. Women clearly enacted leadership in pastoral and liturgical contexts from the early church to the early medieval period within their religious communities and further afield. Perhaps the most notable example from my recent research anyway is Hildegard of Bingen, who, off the top of my head, her dates were 1098 to 1179. And she acted as abbess over two communities of women, undertook preaching tours, and through her visionary insight was confessor and admonisher of abbesses, abbots, kings, and popes. Women in the early medieval period were ordained, that is, commissioned to particular orders within the church which represented ecclesiastical and spiritual authority and thus they had significant influence in the medieval church in the west. 
However, by the time that Hildegard was writing and preaching in the 12th century, women's vocations were becoming increasingly marginalised as clericalism increased and the definition of ordination narrowed. Around this time, commentaries on Paul's letters began to deny that women had ever been deaconesses. Ambrose Aster, an anonymous 4th century writer whose commentary on the letters of Paul uh, was very prevalent at this time and began to be circulated, and another commentary on Paul's letters from the school of now, which included Anselm, known as the Glossa Ordinaria, both took this position. Despite references to the ordination of women by many church fathers, Origen, Jerome, Cassiodorus, Claudius of Turin, and Epaphinius, among others, uh, and the defence of the role and position of abbesses by Abelard, canonists and popes tended to follow the great church canon lawyer, Gratian, who taught that women had never been and would never be ordained to the diaconate and priesthood. But really, in the 13th century, this was a fairly uh, new reading um, because it was obvious from documentation they had available to them that women had been ordained into these roles. So this is the context into which Marjorie Kemp entered. Marjorie was born in around 1373, although we don't know for sure, in Lynn, Norfolk, to a former MP and a powerful merchant. She was an independent businesswoman in her own right, and she was the mother to 14 children. Marjorie followed the call of God to a life as a mystic. As part of that, she took a vow of celibacy. And she was, she describes, ordained to be a mirror in which the church could perceive its calling to be the bride of Christ and in which God might be glimpsed. This ordination was costly. Marjorie was persecuted intensely from within and without the church as ecclesial authorities at the time became especially suspicious of enigmatic prophetic figures with a potential to cause disorder. This is because of the prominence of Lollardy at the time, a heresy which originally belonged to scholars, John Wycliffe and his Oxford Circle, but by the early 15th century, when Marjorie was active, it belonged to artisans, tradespeople and servants, and spread amongst devout laypeople like Marjorie. The heresy was less concerned with doctrine than it was with moral behaviour and liturgical style. It rejected wealth, greed, and anything that chimed with sacerdotalism or elaboration. Transubstantiation, clerical celibacy, fasting, pilgrimage, priestly confession, and prayer for the dead were all spurned, while uh, Lollards embraced scriptural simplicity. Now, Marjorie was often accused of being a Lollard, but she definitely wasn't one. She made pilgrimage to Jerusalem and Rome, and pilgrimage is one of the things that Lollards really rejected. Uh, She had an orthodox understanding of the Eucharist by the standards of the time, but she was a powerful, outspoken woman who preached, prophesied, and admonished clerics. Marjorie was particularly vulnerable to accusations of Lollardy, as it was claimed that Lollards allowed women excessive participation, including preaching and administering the sacraments, and that they even ordained women as priests. Marjorie's demonstrative piety, and particularly her preaching, put her at risk of condemnation. On one occasion in which Marjorie was condemned for preaching by a cleric quoting from the words of Paul, Marjorie responds cleverly by drawing a distinction between preaching and teaching. Some of us have heard this before. (laughs) She says that she comes in no pulpit, but communicates and uses good words. However, later in the book, Christ vindicates Marjorie in a vision, saying, Daughter, I once sent St Paul to you to strengthen you and comfort you, so that you should boldly speak in my name from that day forward. 
And St. Paul said to you that you had suffered much tribulation because of his writing. And he promised you that because of this, you should have as much grace for his love as you ever had shame or reproof. He also told you of the many joys of heaven and of the great love that I had for you. Ultimately, Marjorie's vocation to preach or speak the gospel is authorised directly by Christ. This said, given the risk of being condemned and executed as a heretic, it was vital that Marjorie sought authorisation. The sources of her authority were divine and priestly, comprising of approval by clerics, including her scribes, various bishops, and by the triune God and the saints, who appeared to her on several occasions in visions. Whilst approval and encouragement do not necessarily denote ordination of any kind or official licensing, there is an impartation of authority that certainly transcends the strict boundaries set around the ministry of women in the 15th century church. In addition, motifs that portray Marjorie as the spouse of God and mother of Christ echo other contemporary depictions of the priest as bearing Christ in the Eucharist. So one of the first sources that I will look at is uh, authority through the use of scribes. By employing scribes, Marjorie demonstrated both literary and spiritual authority. It appears that she lacked any kind of formal education of her own and that she was unable to write, and so a scribe was just necessary for her book to be able to be written at all. Marjorie inherited a tradition whereby the female text was mediated and thus verified by a male author or scribe. Now, there's much debate about the authorship of Marjorie's book, and for for today, I'm just going to stay within the world of the text in which Marjorie is the protagonist and author mediated through a scribe. Though the scribe could verify the text, affording it greater authority, uh, this might serve to reduce Marjorie's own authority and control over the book. However, the book is clear that Marjorie did not receive authority by virtue of her scribes. Indeed, her scribe is sanctified himself by the act of writing the book in obedience to God's call to Marjorie. There's even an account of a minor miracle in which a scribe who could not read the writing that they needed to transcribe was suddenly able to read it by virtue of Marjorie's praying for him, and so received a kind of sanctification and a miraculous intervention which led to the writing of this remarkable spiritual text. The scribe is a witness to Marjorie, the holy woman, who is always central to this text. Aside from the scribe's faithful witness to Marjorie, which is conveyed to the reader, the only other direct speech in the book at all is by God to Marjorie. Marjorie's authority is divinely conferred. Her book is verified not by the scribe directly, but by the singularity and holiness of Marjorie's life. In addition to this, at critical points within Marjorie's narrative, It's Episcopal authority that licenses Marjorie's quest for spiritual authority. Marjorie's relationship with clerics and bishops was somewhat turbulent. She's portrayed generally as a fearless preacher, but when she starts lecturing the monks of Canterbury, she is accused of being a lollard and threatened with execution. Faced with the prospect of martyrdom, Marjorie is reassured by Christ, who tells her to adopt the dress of a holy woman, an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. At this critical juncture in the text, Marjorie turns, as was proper at the time, to Episcopal authority, that of bishops. She visits the Bishop of Lincoln and seeks confirmation from him in her vow of chastity. He says that he doesn't have enough authority, so sends her to the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
the acceptance from the first bishop that came later and then the archbishop is only provisional though as it must be fulfilled through visiting the sites of the source of all episcopal authority jerusalem and rome so marjorie sets off on pilgrimage it is in rome and jerusalem that marjorie receives a kind of consecration of her vocation in part due to her approval by papal legates but mostly by virtue of her visions of the triune god which take place in jerusalem There's a kind of trope within medieval mystical women's lives in texts where religious women are married to Christ as a sign of Christ's marriage to the church. Hildegard of Bingen's daughters even wore white silk garments and golden crowns when they were celebrating feasts. However, when Marjorie, depicted as the young, beautiful bridegroom, expected to wed Christ, her beloved, she discovers that she is instead to wed God the Father. As the marriage service takes place, which follows broadly the words that we would be familiar with now, Marjorie is at first silent, for which Christ makes apology, daunted by the spiritual status that such a pairing affords. But from this time onwards, Marjorie sees herself as the spouse of God and experiences a spiritual intimacy God, which she describes using a lovemaking as a metaphor. And I quote, this is my translation, and therefore you may boldly take me in your arms and kiss my mouth, my head and my feet as sweetly as you will. In this imagery, there are echoes of Bernard of Clairvaux's commentary on the Song of Songs, in which he describes passionately kissing Christ's feet and mouth, and of Rupert of Deutz's intimate, visceral experiences of union with Christ. For Rupert, who was around at about the same time as Marjorie, this intimate union formed an important part of his call to priestly ministry in the Benedictine order. For Marjorie, marriage to God the Father is a sacramental act in which she becomes spouse, mother and daughter of God. There's a lot more that I could go into where she sees herself in the place of Mary, um, even in that role um, that she's bearing Christ. And there's some Eucharistic imagery there, but my time is limited. So this assurance of Marjorie's role as spouse, mother and daughter of God and the impartation of authority that goes with it was more significant than any assurance or authorization that a bishop could offer. Through Marjorie's confrontations with ecclesiastical authority, which give way to the direct assurance by God of her vocation, she points to the ultimate fertility of seeking to use rules and conventions to restrict and repress her vocation as one ordained to be a mirror. She was ordained to be an example of piety in which her fellow Christian and especially clerics could reflect on their standing with God. So to sum up, Marjorie appears as a mystical and prophetic voice at a time in which women's vocations were often marginalised in the church. In no small part, this is due to a narrowly defined clericalism from which women had been excluded during the Gregorian reforms. Before these reforms, a variety of offices in which women participated were ordained, but in a more functional sense than the more sacramental, ontological and male definitions of priesthood and diaconate that settled throughout the 12th and 13th centuries. It is thus perhaps particularly significant that Marjorie is absolutely at the centre of her own story as a holy woman ordained to be a mirror, consecrated as the bride of God the Father. Marjorie's vocation is essentially ontological. It is authorised by her scribes, bishops and by papal legate, but most importantly, Marjorie is directly authorised by God, set apart for a role that included preaching and admonishing lay people and clerics by her example, but most of all, which comprised of being. 
So as a Baptist, I love reading these edgy, prophetic women who are really dissenters. They do not fit easily within the medieval church, but nonetheless, they spoke and continue to speak passionately about devotion and vocation, demanding integrity and reform from the ecclesiastical structures which would wish to silence them. The mystics' radical piety, their deep love for Christ, and their desire to integrate their often astonishing experiences of the divine with the life of the church and their particular religious communities is something we could all aspire to. We could do worse than to learn from them, to channel their tenacity, their prophetic edge, and their radical devotion. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. Um, we've got some time for some questions, if anyone... Yes, Martin. Um, you mentioned Marjorie Bevan being accused of being a lawyer. Um, my church is quite close to Amersham, and there are okay. famous martyrs from Amersham who were lawyers. Yeah. I wondered if Marjorie had a geographical base that you could identify or knew of. Yeah, Lynn, Norfolk. Um, so you might have said that. Maybe I, I did at the very beginning. Right. but um, Yeah, so that, that was where she tended to be, which was actually very much a centre of Lollardy. I think um, within a three-year period, sometime during her ministry, which I can't exactly recall, there were something like 60 Lollards who were martyred at the time. So it was a particularly dangerous place for her to be. Um, Thank you. Yeah, uh, she did interact with uh, Lady Julian of Norwich. She did. Yes. Didn't she go with her guard to seek her endorsement? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Marjorie and Julian exchanged letters and, and Marjorie visited Julian, um, who of course was another incredible medieval visionary. Um, there isn't an awful lot about their interactions, which is a real shame because I, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Um, and it's something that I'd like to look into a little bit more. Um, but I think they're their styles were very different in that Julian was an anchoress and Marjorie was this great traveller. And so you've, you've got Julian who was kind of, uh, who was literally built into the wall of a, of a church and, and Marjorie who was visiting Jerusalem and, and Rome. Um, but I think they, they must have both learned an awful lot from each other because um, both of their lives were extraordinary and they both had an amazing understanding of what it meant to be devoted to, to God. Um, though Julian understood that in, in quite different and possibly more feminine terms to Marjorie, although that could be a whole other paper which I would love to write at some point. I think, I think there's a play in that. Yeah, I think there probably yeah, is. Julian yeah, Julian yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was trying to find the name of the text where Curtis Freeman collects a load of um, women preachers right. in the 17th century, a company of. Uh, you know, I'm not going to find it. Mm. And I'm wondering, you know, so these are women who, despite what Gail was saying about John Munn Merton, um, saying there was that sense of, um, they, they weren't becoming leaders in the sense of the church, but they were finding this ministry. And I wonder actually what struck me is how much did they know of Marjorie? Did they see themselves in that same line? So, yeah. yeah, so this is absolutely why basically I ended up doing this research, is because. Um, I think often, as Baptists, we we we're not, I mean we're not as good as we should be at our own history, um, but we're certainly not as good as we should be at, at going before that. Because I I found a remarkable amount of solidarity. I started off with the mystics by looking at Teresa of Avila, and reading about her call to um, to the cloistered life and 
all of her kind of foibles about that and all of her fears and she talks about her spiritual journey, journey incredibly eloquently and and went oh you know some someone 600 years ago felt like this and and as women throughout history have been trying to find ways of enacting their god-given vocations um in times where that was dangerous and limited but you know that can still be <laughs> dangerous and limited there can still be a huge cost to that and I think there's an awful lot to be learned um, from looking at Marjorie who you know who we can't call a feminist I mean she definitely was working within the structures of her time um, but she she found ways of kind of gently subverting them and I think that that's not always what we're called to do now um, I think the time for gentle subversion is, is well and truly over, um, or it ought to be. But I'm still so inspired by looking at people like Marjorie and Hildegard, who had no choice really but to work with the structures. Um, I, and, and I mean, didn't pull any punches. Hildegard, I know more about than Marjorie, spent most of her ministry writing to popes and to King Henry II of England and to the Holy Roman Emperor telling them that they were getting everything wrong and that God would smite them. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there are different styles of ministry. Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, could you say something around the, the motivation? I can't remember who you said that someone's commentary on Romans talking mm. about the denial of the role of women in yeah. as deacons. I was thinking Sarah Coatley talks about how in the, the, the pre-Nicene period mm. there was a lot of um, female leadership, women's leadership in, in churches and how it became suppressed because of um, the, you know, the move to Constantinian settlement and to, to sort of iron out any scandal or yeah. any disorderliness. Um, and so you get to the, the time of the Nicene period where female ministry is put down. And, and she says at the same time there was a real dulling down of talk about the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that, that comes out of the I just wondered what were the circumstances that were leading to that kind of suppression of history at, at that point. I think at this point it was more to do with um, trying to make church history and canon law look like it all lined up and that it had, it had been consistent. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that it's never only that um, but certainly looking at people like Gratian who was a, a canon lawyer I mean even he slipped up a few times and included references to deaconesses in his, in his major legal tome um, because there just were deaconesses you know there, there's nothing he could do about it really um, so I, I think by this point it was partly wanting to kind of make things more uniform and partly that because um, women's vocations were, were always under scrutiny um, they were less regulated um, and so women if they were following a religious vocation didn't ne weren't necessarily kept as an eye on as carefully so um, the Cistercian order which was probably the most influential order in the 12th century which was Bernard of Clairvaux's um, kind of you know, super Benedictines. I mean, these are the really like doctrinally strict ones, and um, they didn't admit women, and were quite unusual amongst religious orders at the time for not admitting women as nuns. And eventually, very begrudgingly, started to admit them. Um, but because they were, because women were sidelined from probably one of the most significant monastic kind of movements of this period of time, I think there's also an element of, of wanting to 
um, reflects that in, in, in canon law. Um, well, thank you for opening up Marjorie and many of you. I hope you encourage us.